Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mason Wilson, and this is the War Room to the Boardroom podcast. Today, we have our guest, Miss um, Kathy Joseph. I'm your host, as always, Mason Wilson, Global Business Strategy Operations at Google, Combat Veteran, Deacon VA, and West Boyer. To provide a little background on Kathy, she's the Chief of Staff and Local Market Lead at Accenture in the D.C. metropolitan area. She's a former associate at Booz Allen Hamilton and a former manufacturing project manager at Fairbanks Morse Engine and National Air Cargo. She was both an active National Guard MP officer, a former outreach officer. She's a graduate of West Point, George Washington University, and Georgetown McDonough School of Business. So after the little Kathy kind of introduce herself. I don't want to say anything more after all of that. That feels like a lot. <laughs> uh, it is. That's uh, that's busy. Um, yeah, no, it's so happy to be here with you, Mayshawn. And I feel um, lucky because the second podcast I'm getting to do with you, I'm really excited about this one with the war room to the boardroom and just, you know, how you position this and, um, the kinds of advice you get from folks on here. So happy to be here. As Mayshawn said, I'm Kathy Joseph. I am originally from Trinidad. I was born in on the sunny island of Trinidad. We immigrated to the U.S. when I was a kid, when I was around eight years old, to Maryland. So I grew up in Prince George's County. That is where I uh, went to the academy from, from Maryland. And I won't restate <laughs> the, the educational background, but as I mentioned, I immigrated here. Um, it was my mom and I. So grew up in a single family home with my mom. A lot of my family's still in Trinidad. That's where my dad is. I would, uh, you know, hang out with him in the summers. And and really, you know, we moved here because of my mom, like the way the um, education system is set up in Trinidad. It's it's very much you have to test to get into high school, right? Like where you go to high school determines on, you know, how you're testing as a middle schooler or, you know, an 11, 12 year old, your whole future is hinging on that. And so my mom was just like looking at me and like, at you know this point in time, you're you have a 99% and you're fourth in your class, your future is doomed. So um we really immigrated to the US uh, for opportunities for me to have the best education that I could get. And um and then while in in high school is when I got exposed to JROTC, uh really, really drawn to it. And that's how I got my exposure to just like a broader view of hey, military values, you know, what it's about. It was an Air Force Junior ROTC. And um, I had the opportunity um, and was encouraged to apply to the service academies. And so for me, a lot about the academy and going to the academy was a predicate on the opportunities we had to immigrate here. You know, it's kind of the ultimate form of service. Our service members, you know, protect those freedoms. And so that's you know, that's, that's a lot about my background. I love it. And so coming from Air Force ROTC, JROTC, I should say, what steered you towards West Point as opposed to like Air Force or Navy, especially being in Maryland? No. <laughs> I wanted to be... Oh, no. Um, I, I actually originally thought I wanted to be a Marine Corps officer. Just uh, our JROTC in our county was... Legit. Like we had 20 high schools in our county at the time. They all had JROTC. 
like predominantly they were Air Force, then Navy was the next, then Army, and then there was one Marine Corps school. We had a summer boot, uh, first boot camp. So we're in ninth grade. You had to go through boot camp first. And they had a summer officer program. So like you got nominated and then you went to the, the officer program. And so like that's how you became an officer in your in your, you know, through your schools. And so when you went through, you got to run the boot camp or you got to run the officer, you know, the officer camp as you were officers. So it was like legit. Like they had all of that set up. There was this mean, bad, like a lot of um, former ROTC grads would come back as well to run some of the boot camps. And there was this badass black woman who was a corporal in the Marine Corps, Corporal Van Hook. And I was like, I want to be her. I want to be, you know, and I didn't know enough at the time, right? But like that kind of solidified it. But a lot of our graduates went to the service academies. So I knew people at different academies. But what really solidified West Point for me is when I visited for myself. And, and you know how we have the visits. So I did Navy's summer summer program, but visited West Point. And the Black women that I encountered at West Point, the community I encountered at West Point, even more broadly than that, like I had um, stayed with a person on the track team. So then I got to see like the broader track team, you know, community. For me, that solidified it compared to what I observed and experienced, you know, at Navy. So it was really very much about the people, the camaraderie, the the sisterhood, you know, what all the things that we know that I need to be about. So kind of trying to find your place and finding the right people that kind of guide you in that, that path. Yeah. Uh, and you talk about kind of some of your contributions at West Point. And so, you know, I usually ask people like, oh, like, you know, when you left the military, you mentioned you're an MP officer, you left as a captain. You know, in sports, can you talk about like your contribution and like women's rugby and all of that great stuff? Yeah. So clearly community is is huge for me. I think the single most contribution that I have that I'm proud of is us founding the women's rugby team, women's army rugby war. Um we start on that path my cow year, my junior year, towards getting the team established. And really it was a little bit based on like my defiant nature, just talking to folks about like, we watched a lot of rugby games and then we're like, wait a minute, why don't we have a rugby team and talk to one of my classmates who went to Navy for a semester. And she's like, Navy has a whole rugby team. They've had a rugby team since the nineties. Air Force, when we found out we did research has had a rugby team since like right when women came in, you know, practically in the seventies in the when they came in. And so it was like, well, why doesn't West Point have one? And I think the response we got at the time was because no one's interested. And I was like, well, that can't be right. <laughs> Challenge accepted. And so I'll, I'll spare you, you know, all of the, the details around it. But within a week, you know, of just reaching out to my network, there were six, there were 40 women who were like, I would play. And within the time of us trying to put together the stuff, there were over 60 who were like, yeah, I would absolutely play rugby if we had a team. And so myself and the, the founding 40, a few core, core people started the process of getting the team established. And we now get to give my age away, just celebrated our 20th anniversary of the team in November. As the universe would have it, literally on the day that we founded it, we were going through old documentation, found an email. And that was the date, November 4th, 2002, was when we had kicked off the anniversary weekend. And, you know, when you are doing something like that, especially at that young age, it was just more like, we want to play rugby. This is a sport that we're interested in. How can we make it happen? You you can't, you can't fathom the impact 
or what it will look like in the future. Like you, you have no way of looking forward to understand that. Um, but I shared with you before and I've shared with others at that anniversary weekend, we created a forum called War Stories, you know, just like old soldiers like to sit around and tell them. But then also for us with our name being Women's Army Rugby and calling ourselves War, just to share your favorite memory. And it was so powerful and beyond anything I could have imagined, but exactly what I would have been looking for, you know, as a young cadet coming in. Um, just the community that was created. I brought my friends with me to the team. Like a lot of my uh, classmates were like, I'm only doing this because you're asking me to do it. I will support you. I think it's crazy, but if you need numbers, I'm here. But the teams that I've seen when I went back in admissions and coached the team, their their whole academy experience is based on that community and the existence of that team. And we created spaces and safe spaces as well for a whole community that I couldn't have, I couldn't have fathomed. I mean, that's pretty awesome to see like that entire legacy of how you contributed to other cadets, their development and counterintelligence community. And so in finding that community at West Point, can you talk about your journey through the Army and then your decision to leave? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I commissioned as a military police officer and I, I've that was my first choice. I uh, remember feeling the envelope and being like, oh my gosh, these don't feel like cross pistols. What happened? And then opened it, crisis averted. Um, my first duty station was Korea. And, and I also did CTLT in Korea. So I was excited you know, to go back, had a great experience there. I was stationed um, as a platoon leader in Korea. I remember just being told, this isn't the real army. This is Korea. It's all training. But at the time when we picked our, our posts, it made sense for me. So, you know, I went to Korea, was there for a year and then heard if I had left, I wouldn't get any more platoon leader time. Like lieutenants weren't getting platoon leader time. So I extended for 18 months and then got selected to be a platoon leader in the old guard. So the third U.S. infantry regiment and got there and was like, this isn't the real army. <laughs> Um, but had had an amazing experience. Obviously, um, it, it's an honor to be able to, you know, to do the old guard mission and to be able to to just serve ceremonially, whether it's um the dignified transfers of remains that we did, you know, some of the different ceremonies. But it, it was, it felt like it wasn't the real army. And so I was a platoon leader there, tremendous experience as well. And then I actually deployed as an individual augmentee. That's how I got my experience and went to Baghdad. So that was 2006 to 2007 for me. And I was in force for the MNFI, Multinational Force Iraq Strategic Operations Protection Directorate. So we were there assessing, you know, across the whole theater of operations, like, are these spaces good to go? Ministry of Iraq, some really gnarly places that you're like, we're assessing this. I don't even know if it's safe for us to be here, but let's go, you know, go check it out. And and then that's where I also did some stuff with biometrics, which will come in handy later. And then did a year there, came back and came back to admissions. So I think they did it when you were um, an admissions officer too. You come back to your desk the first day I had the far west region. I wanted to be um, not close to home. I wanted to check out a different space. And there's my cadet admissions file and cadet file sitting on my desk. So that was super interesting. I think my decision to transition out at the time, 
I thought it was the army. I later learned that it was me. At the time, I was just like, man, in five years, I've been in four different places and I haven't really, you know, set roots or made the connections that I want to. I think I need to leave the army. Um, I want to do something different. You know, let me let me try this civilian, the civilian world. And then <laughs> in the four years after leaving the army, I would have, you know, been at Booz Allen. I did join the guard. I changed over to logistics while I was in the guard, but I would have been at Booz Allen. I would have gone on orders, you know, to, to prep my company for an overseas assignment. I would then come off orders and go work for this logistics company. And then and then I remember being in Dubai, I ran a warehouse, a cross-locking warehouse that took stuff in and out of Afghanistan. I even helped, you know, with some of the drawdown plans. But I remember standing like on the tarmac in my little safety gear outside the warehouse and there's like no other women on the tarmac. And I'm like, oh, it wasn't the army. It's me. I like doing different things. So um, <laughs> it's like leaving the army for, for me to realize that part about myself. But that's what really drove that decision for me um, at the time. And then, you know, now I'm thankful for it. People often ask, especially with a lot of my classmates being close to retirement, hey, you could be retiring now. Like, do you regret it? You know, do you wish you made a different choice? And if you are a Marvel nerd like me or a science nerd like me, I believe in the multiverse. And so somewhere in the multiverse, <laughs> there's a version of me that stayed in the army. <laughs> Oh, and wow. amazing career and loves it. And, and there's this version of me that also enjoys my experiences. It, you know, it wouldn't be the same. I've had so many unique experiences and I, there's no way for me to compare, you know, what that could have maybe been like, you know, beyond the next assignment, the next assignment or whatever. So, uh, so far so good. And that, that was it. <laughs> That's helpful kind of through the process and that, you know, you, most people are like, oh, I'm tired of the move. I'm looking for a bit more stability. And then ultimately you come to find that this is just how you roll and how you operate. Yeah. So in looking at that path and talking to the broader array of veterans that are thinking about the transition, what would you tell them if they're thinking about leaving the military or considering that thought? How would you think through it differently or would you change anything about your process and journey? Yeah. So, you know, we are inherently different people and I think what the military does for us sometimes is makes us forget that because there's the you've got to hit this milestone by this mark you've got to do this thing in this time frame everyone's you know hitting these milestones and these growth paths along the same tra trajectory even if you're in different branches or different functional areas you're still kind of being grouped together and so for anyone who's thinking about transitioning i think it's important to um, take a step back and really reflect on like who you are versus like who the military says you are or how the military is doing that. And, and for some of us, that's difficult because, you know, we've been doing it since we were 17 years old. Right. So it, I think it's really imperative for you to consider that. And if I had considered that and, and, and realized that, no, I actually like, you know, moving around or like the different career opportunities, I don't, I still don't know if I would have stayed in. However, luckily for me, I've stumbled into, and I say stumble, like careers and companies where you can do that, right? Particularly where I am at Accenture, the company is so huge and has so many different things that we dabble in. I have been in, in five and a half, almost six years, been able to hit 
three or four different roles, almost the same way like we did every couple of years. I'm like, all right, time for a new role. What, you know, what's new? Where can I hop in? Where can I add value? Slightly differently than the army. I can choose (laughs) Um, with more certainty where I'm going, you know, and what I'm going to do next. But um, that would be my, my primary recommendation is before you jump, leap, decide, you know, really reflect on who you are and and what matters to you. Um, going back and forth on um, this decision-making process, it's called 10, 10, 10. I'll have to, I'll have to get back with you on the author of the book, but it's this 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years approach to decisions. So the first thing you do is you list out your values, like what matters to you. So usually people are like, make a pros and cons list. Well, pros and cons list really only work for deciding what car to buy or like, you know, where to live, like these non-complex decisions, right? Not what am I going to do with my life? And so it starts with listing out your values. What are the things that matter the most to you? And then considering that you're about to make this decision in 10 minutes, 10 months, and 10 years, how will you feel and how do you want to feel? And the, the consensus is, if it's going to make you feel great in 10 minutes, but in 10 months or 10 years, um, you're not sure you might regret that. Or even if the 10 minutes and 10 months are going to be painful, but in 10 years, you'll feel great about the decision. That's the guide. And so, you know, when I look back, I I learned that um, about that technique just after kind of transitioning out of the army. But when I look back at my decision, if I had this itch and I felt like, ah, I really want to try to do something different and I hadn't pursued it, I feel like 10 years later, I would have been like, ah, what if I had done it? You know, should I have gone there? And so I really um, lean on that methodology often where I'm like, this, this is going to suck for 10 minutes. It's going to suck for 10, 10 months even, but like in 10 years, this is um, going to be worth it. Grad school is similar. The second time I didn't want to do my MBA. And I remember like going, kicking and screaming, but you know, the 10 years, it's worth it now. And you know, I'm not even near the 10 year horizon, but for sure it definitely is. So I like that. That's a, that's a good framework. I'm going to add that, add that to the list for sure. Yeah. Uh I'll get you the author. She's a, I think she's either a Harvard grad or Harvard professor as well. So. And it's a great process in how you look at all those opportunities and decisions. And there's always that sense of like, am I missing out because I didn't stay in? Do I choose these new and different opportunities? It's accepting the non-linearity of the opportunities once you leave, which I enjoy. And so, and going back to like what you mentioned about Accenture, like what is a chief of staff of like the BC metropolitan area? Like, what does that even mean? Is that like like a chief of staff in the army or is that really different? Right. So I think the thing that I've learned the most about uh, taking on a chief of staff role is that it is defined by the person and the leader that you're serving. And then I've also heard, so I've been in a, a, one of my roles within Accenture has been like a practice chief of operations. And so talking to some of my mentors inside of the firm, the one distinction they said was COO is about the business. Chief of staff is about that is more about the individual and kind of like their, their vision. So for me, from as Metro DC chief of staff, and I'm also a local market lead, it's really about our leadership, our, our office managing director for Metro DC. I'm his chief of staff for everything that's happening within Metro DC. And then we set the vision. So we actually really just went through our, our strategy planning and it is, it's around enhancing employee experience, fueling our client engagement and then making measurable community impact. And I'm so excited about this role because 
it allows me the opportunity to put all of those things together in a way that matters to me. It's like, how do we engage our employees in a way that matters? But then like from the client piece, it's like, how do we get these unique ways to engage with our clients? Our CEO always says we want our clients to love us. How do we go beyond a happy hour or just delivering good work for, with our clients instead? Like, how do we bring them together? And so just to give you an example of that yesterday, um, we have high school interns that come in the summers NASA is one of our clients and the client account lead was like, I would love to do this. NASA wants to do it. So we just brought high school students from Metro DC, 50 of them in with NASA at NASA HQ to do a career panel to get to visit the Earth Information Center. And then when at the end of it, this client is like, that was amazing. We want to do more with you. So it's like finding the things that matter to our clients and our people and bringing them together. And then, and then like when you get to connect on that kind of value-based level, whatever relationships happen from that, I think are just more genuine than what we're doing. So I'm, I'm really excited about finding lots of ways to do that, but whatever matters to our clients, whatever matters to our people. Cause even the um, people, the, the, the consultants that we have running that program for high schoolers, they raise their hand because something like that matters you know, to them and therefore they're making that experience even better. So it's lots of those things. Our Metro DC area goes from Baltimore to Richmond. So it's like all of that for all of the clients that we have for the 10,000 people that we have in that area and the over, I want to say over 30 community partners that we have, you know, from different nonprofits to to entities that are are doing things to boost the economy of the, the different cities in those areas. So yeah, it's pretty dope. The combination of you're the aide de camp and the CG as a managing partner, you're also doing like community partnerships or relationships. And you're also like trying to find people to do various initiatives to make sure that the base or the client initiatives, engagements, deployments, training rotations, however you want to compare those. Yeah, yeah. Are all, are all going on. That's right. uh, and so like in order to do that kind of role, like typically what's required. So we talked about the title, we talked about what it means. Usually, what kind of experience does does that require? Yeah. So the first one of the baseline requirements they have for within the firm is having been at the firm long enough, right? Because you are interacting from a client perspective. So not too long. They want you to have like a a few years with the firm, but to understand that business, right? So under, I think fundamental to a lot of things in the corporate world is understanding the business. Like you do while all the things I'm talking about feel like they're touchy-feely, like I still need to understand like how we generate revenue, what our profitability looks like, right? Because at the crux of it, we're still getting after these client engagements, right? To 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 grow those relationships, to make them to make them more impactful. But like I need to understand the business, right? I need to know like, hey, we're probably not going to touch the sector to do a community service project right now because they've got to focus on these things. Let's instead pivot to, you know, to something else. So I think specific to my role, but just zooming out, you know, as people land into the corporate world, they need to do what, um, to, to, to do as much as possible to understand how their business runs, their organization runs, like what's important, what are, you know, what are the priorities with strategy? And then if there isn't one, put one in a place, which is, I refreshed mine for my role as well. To identify what the key priorities are, whether that's like the commander's intent yeah. or whatever. I actually use commander's intent um, a lot with my my team. So I'm like, we're gonna bring some army speak in, so we can we can all be on the same uh, same page here. And I, I, it's a super cheesy story, but it's like commander's intent using uh, five hour energy versus Starbucks. <laughs> 
And so in that experience, right, you'd come from previous consulting experience, whether you're MBA requirement or, or the same program manager, project manager, people leadership skills kind of carried over when you felt like it was the thing that you really needed to be successful both in this and in that role. As a consultant, for us, we have like our firm stratified. We have a lot of different um, areas of consulting. So the MBA is not necessary, you know, for some of it, but I will tell you it's been beneficial for me compared to some other folks. And again, because it helps me to understand how the business works. Like there's some just core principles that I got out of out of my MBA program to help me understand that piece. It was the, the single reason why I did the MBA. At the time, I was a director of per, uh, program management at Fairbanks. And my boss was the 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 president of our of our group. And I would ask all these questions, you know, as part of his team. He'd be like, you know, you should just get your MBA. You're asking the right questions, but like to get that foundation and that knowledge will be helpful. And I often forget like how much that has underpinned a lot of just the way I'm able to go in on certain conversations and ask questions. So while it's not a it's not necessarily a requirement, it has been helpful for me. In this in this particular role, as I mentioned, I, I do think it's useful. But the other things that have been helpful for me in this role is that I'm well-rounded because, again, our, our company spans around a few different what you call it service groups right, or um, areas. So we've got operations, we've got technology, we've got strategy and consulting, we've got industry X, and we've got our, our digital experience, our interactive experience. So... Having had exposure, you know, in, in some of not all the areas, but some of those areas makes it easy for um, me to be able to engage and um, and talk to leaders and at least baseline understand like what they're looking for, what's important for them. So I think, you know, I, w- I would say that that's important as well for folks like if you're going into a space like consulting, especially for firms that tend to do more than one thing, to, to broaden a bit, right? To be able to understand what are the different things that are happening across the business and to be able to be conversant. And then just also being able to think critically, right? Like being able to think critically and being comfortable asking questions. It's not okay to sit there if you don't understand something. I think a lot of, at least at our firm, a lot of the, the culture is like, ask a question if you have it. Chances are somebody else you know, also has it. And there are just so many acronyms and it's so big, like it's not, a, it's not assumed that, you know, so being able to just ask those critical questions and kind of, kind of dig from there. It's like, why are we doing this? How does this tie to, you know, our strategy? How is this benefiting, you know, your business unit? Like, why would we fund this? Like, what's the benefit either to our people, our clients or community? So. Can you talk a little bit about how the culture that you've seen, you've seen a couple of different organizations and companies how the culture and onboarding changes your experience. So in the example that you mentioned, there's a key to ask, ask a lot of questions. And so as opposed to the Army where it's like, yeah, here's the team, here's the at them. How does it look different in the corporate world when we talk about ambiguity and onboarding and working at that environment? Ambiguity and onboarding. So I think there's, there's, I think you can tell a bit in the interview as well, like what the culture is going to be. So I just share a little bit about Accenture. When I interviewed at Fairbanks, um, it was to be, uh, it was, it was initially to be a project manager. And then a few months later, I became the, the director of the department. But the question that the president whom I interviewed with, he's like, look, a senior resume, you're qualified. Like, I don't, you know, care about that. The next question is how we're going to have this conversation is about if you can work in this environment and if you can be part of this team. And so he said, are you comfortable not being the smartest person in the room? And so talk about, right, like an onboarding. I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) But then really to step back and put it in perspective, it's it's what we 
it's also kind of what we do as officers in the army. And it's, you know, to an extent, just as um, service members, we're, we're not the smartest people, but we're surrounded by people who have their different areas, their specialty areas, their strengths. And we understand what everybody brings and we know who to, who to pull in or bring in for something, you know, you got to bring, you know, your six, your S6. If you, if you got something here, you know, to bring in the one for that. And we all come together and we have different parts of the plan, different parts of the op world, you know, that come together to give the big picture. And so um, his point for me was you're going to be leading a bunch of engineers. They're really smart at being engineers and building and and engineering things, you're not going to be the person who knows the most about the product that we're building. I'm not hiring you to know that. I'm bringing you in to make sure our projects are brought together. We have the right people there. They've delivered on time. And then ultimately, you know, when I got promoted to do that for the whole organization, to think about that from, okay, the whole our whole program management how does the operations group fit into this from the factory floor how does after you know market sales fit into this how do we prep you know with business development and our proposals and so you know i think for me like hearing that alleviated a lot because i remember thinking man this is a manufacturing company this is engineering and that's i'm i'm not a pure engineer um but he set me up to understand that from the beginning and then i felt comfortable I was like i know why i'm here i know what i'm doing um and so to your point i think you know understanding even before you get to onboarding through the interview process like what that company's culture is will let you know if it's a good fit for us because going back to earlier we're not all the same <laughs> A lot of people hear veterans, see veterans coming in to interview and assume, oh, we're going to put them in our, you know, whatever's the, the 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 part of the company that has military, you know, related or service or DOD related programs. And we may not want that or our, our talents or experiences want to drive us somewhere else. So I think it's a really good point about people treating veterans like a monolith, one, and then two, how do you navigate Neither being the expert, but also like just understanding what the skill sets are of other people. Yeah, for sure. One of the big differences is like, oh, influencing without authority, be like, they don't have to do what I say, but like, it'd be great if you did this. It would be awesome. That's right. <laughs> and I mean, that's a lot of, you know, some some parts networking, but really just relationship building. I think one of the things that, I tend to do, and I think I'm an omnivert um, versus like an extrovert or an introvert. But one of the things I tend to do when I get somewhere, even within my own firm, because it's so big, is I, I start to just like on meetings, on calls, find people and reach out and get to know them and hear about them and what they do and just build community outside of like my group. Because nine times out of 10, I've been able to then call them later for something else or reach back and bring them in. And I do that at all levels, leaders peers and um and people who are junior to me as far as, as level and it's been in, invaluable for me i mean um just popping into this role um the person that works with me on my team is like where did you find these people to help us build this tool i'm like aha yes <laughs> we worked together before you know and it's 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 a bit of a force multiplier for us in in getting us going so that in- and so as you continue to build these relationships not only at west point like army and like in the corporate space do most of these opportunities come because you're part of them or they're more relationship-based? They're like, hey, I know Kathy and her work and like she would be great in this. How does that kind of influence look a little different as opposed to like a, a force management perspective where HRC like cog role here? Yeah. I have shared before on multiple platforms, every single role I've had in corporate America since leaving the army 
has been based on a referral. I've never actually applied. I've had people come to me um, and um, identify, hey, there's an opportunity on my team, you know, based on what I know about you, understand about you could be a good fit. Obviously, I've had to interview, but I've never like just cold applied and been like, this role looks good. Let me, you know, sign up. It's it's definitely been um just through my network and, and people understanding what I'm capable of and and having worked with me. And and then even internal, you know, people here in consulting, you've got to find different projects, teams, or when you're searching for something, it's through that. So that's, I think relationships are key. Um, they're important. I'm not saying, you know, never apply or don't apply. Uh, I am saying it's it's good to understand and, um, and to connect with people. The higher likelihood that it's a good fit for you, right? From someone who knows you versus uh, a piece of paper, I'm saying paper, but a, a role description, you know, on a screen that sounds like it kind of maybe be me and then could be something completely different um, when you land. So I, I do think relationships are important and you don't have to, I think a lot of folks who are, um, are tentative, who are tentative about networking feels like it's like being fake or, you know, schmoozing or whatever else. And I'm, I'm here to say that it, it doesn't have to be that at all. I, I don't, I'm not fake. I don't go, Hey, I just need to know this person. When I say I look for people to connect with, it's not like, Oh, this person's title is important. I'm going to go connect with them. It's more like what you said on that call that we were just on really resonates with me. And I just want to talk to you and lo- learn more about you. And then you, the world opens up, you hear this, you know, these things or, or when um, people reach out to me because they want to know about my background and I'm, you know, they're junior to me. I still learn a lot. I understand, have insight, you know, to their, their more current experiences. So I I do think though, uh, relationships and networking can get around it, friends. You've, you've got to do it. I think if you're tentative about it, it's just finding something common that you have something that you saw them post, something that they read, you know, similar background, and then having a real conversation to connect from there and, and develop the relationship from, from there. Great points. I love the networking and referral piece that, you know, it's definitely about finding that warm intro, kind of like in admissions, right? Are you a file number or are you like a name and a person? That's right. I love it. Yeah. Um, you also talk about how navigating that space, not only in your role and progression, but also in connecting with people, how that looks different as a minority woman and as an immigrant and like how that changes how you come toward or come into these spaces. Given the army is more like the only color I see is green. It's a little different. Yeah. I have been, I've been fortunate. So I want to make sure I I don't like whatever I see doesn't come across as saying like, that doesn't exist. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, I've been fortunate. I, what I do think um, is pretty cool in my experience um, as a woman, as a Black woman. And then later, if I get to sh- share my story as, you know, as an immigrant, it's just that sometimes people just see, may just see me. And then when they learn like, wow, military, this experience, what you've done and, and many officers, many veterans have that. Like we haven't just done one thing, you know, in our our service, we have so many experiences that we bring. It's been like a, oh, this is a, yes, this is a black woman, but oh, these are the things that they're, they're bringing with them. And, um, and what I found for me is I'll call them advocates. And I don't think they even know that they're advocating, but then people get excited about your story. Like once you get to know them, then they want to share it. And so because of that, in a lot of spaces, I haven't had to just come in, 
you know, it's not like here's this this black woman. Like there there are people who are literally coming and like, no, this is Kathy. Let me tell you about her background. Like they'll they'll want to tell it for me and share it. And then, you know, not to be one who rests on like past accomplishments. And then when I get in, I'm able to do, you know, more and more things that add to that uh, repertoire and and that uh, that brand, right? My personal brand in the organization. So then it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not only does she have that background as a West Point grad or a veteran or, you know, whatever thing they're anchoring on, Georgetown, whatever. Like, let me tell you about what she did when we um, launched X program, or let me tell you about what she did for the business here. Let me tell you about that impact. And so it's difficult to navigate initially, but like, as you get into a space, like I found that people want um, to tell that story. Um, And yet the other thing that I find myself having to do and um, I'm happy to do and it wasn't until a leader said this to me that I realized the impact of it. So the one of the first black MDs that I worked for, managing directors that I worked for at Accenture ran one of our $100 million um, businesses accounts. And he sat down with me. He's like, hey, so now that you're in this role, you're leading this team, it's your responsibility to make sure that we are also bringing in more black and brown people into our teams. We're giving them the opportunities that people won't. Because overwhelmingly, I don't know what it's like in other spaces, but our black and brown people and, and, and oftentimes women get pigeonholed into PMO or the PMO kinds of roles and not the business impacting roles on client account teams, et cetera. And so he's like, it's it's overwhelmingly important that you make sure they get that opportunity. They will perform once you do that, but you need to put them in those positions so that um, they can do that. And so it's like, they're already inside of the firm, right? The firm has already hired them. Let's make sure they have an opportunity. And so it was like, I got permission finally to do that, right? I don't know about or I know sometimes a lot of, you know, a lot of black um, and brown people were like, oh, we don't want to congregate too much. We don't, you know, we don't want to look like we're doing this, right? But people use their networks all the time. It's just more evident for us because we all happen to, you know, be this, you know, similar shades and it looks, it looks more apparent than the majority. And so, and then what does it matter once you give that person that opportunity when they perform, right? And they will perform because, you know, they've been given that opportunity. And I also make it clear to a lot of times my analysts, I'm like, look, I'm about to talk to somebody now, show up and show out, make sure you show them what you're made of. This is an opportunity for you to, to move forward. So I, I think what makes it different, especially, you know, as we get to these levels is making sure that we provide um, opportunities um, for folks to excel and to, and, and to, you know, continue to, to, to um, like they say, rising tides, lift all boats. So do well and then bring people with us. So not only extending the opportunities to other people, but also just how you navigate those numerous challenges and just finding a way to like make it work. And then one last question on this point before we kind of pivot to more of the lesson learned section. And so I'm curious from your perspective, you mentioned kind of pigeonholes, which I thought was you know, very important. And so how did you navigate the pigeonhole piece? Because, right, you could have easily been like, hey, oh, she's an MP or she's a logistician. Let's keep her in that space and like building security or things like that. And similar veterans might experience the operations or other like sales. And so how do you change your brand or how do you have those conversations when you approach this new organization, this new company, and like yeah. set yourself up for those different opportunities? So the thing you chose at 1721 is not what you do. <laughs> yes. 
For sure. First, first things, who was I just talking to about this? I first things first, I let them know, you know, because people would overwhelmingly go like, you know, we've got an army account. I'm like, yes. And I decidedly do not want to be on the army account. Good. Second, you do, it does take stretching yourself, right? So I think there's there's two approaches. One is like, are you just trying to get your foot in the door? So if you've decided this is where I want to be. And I want to get my foot in the door, you know, at at a place like Accenture and lots of the large consulting firms, once you're in, you do have that flexibility to navigate. Sure. Come in, you know, from the place where they see you. And then, and so that's the first part is like, where where are you? Like, because if you just want to get your foot in the door, this is where you want to be, take that route. And then when you're there, you can start to communicate, explore and get smart. So when I came in, they put me under program project management. I was like, that's cool. I got you. What's the, and then ask questions. What's the process for me to get over to management consulting? Cause that's where I want to be. And they told me and I did it and, you know, aligned myself and made that move and started connecting with people in those spaces. Got to MC and they were like, but you got supply chain operations background. I was like, sure, but not really, but okay, let's do it. Right. And got into that community, understood it, you know, navigated it. But I also started getting smart on other things. Like I consume a whole lot of information about the firm and, you know, kind of where we're going and then started to connect with people in the spaces where I want to be, um, start engaging with them. How can I help? How can I be engaged? How can I learn more? And when you start showing up in other spaces, people actually associate you with those other spaces. So it's like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm program project management. That's where, you know, I'm aligned. I'm doing this commercial director stuff, but I want to be over here now in management consulting. Start showing up in those spaces. And then they're like, oh, I didn't know you were program project management. Or when I start showing up, you know, in the in the other spaces, I didn't know that you were a supply chain. That's cool. But like, I know you because I see you in this circle for this, you know, this particular event. That's how you're engaging. And that's what people associate you with. So if you keep associating with, with what you used to be, that's, you know, where you'll be anchored. If you position yourself where you want to be, that's where people will start to recognize you and 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 align with you and, and align you to that. Excuse me. So that's that's how I avoid it. Like I'm, I mean, yes, I happen to have these other backgrounds, but I kind of point myself and 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 position myself in the groups and around the people where I want to be, and then go from there. Find that to a hold. Being intentional with your manager about what you're trying to go for. And then also like just creating that narrative of where you're trying to go and making those opportunities and connections to align in that new direction. And I love yeah. it. Love yeah. it. And sometimes uh, your, your manager may not, or the person that you're working for may or may not want that. You know, if the if the firm is big enough, they they don't control your every waking hour or day. So what you do, you know, for in the afternoons and in the evenings are are things that can help you position, you know, if you can't do it during the day but if it's easy for you to do during the do during the day and what you're doing yeah absolutely if you got that supportive management team absolutely if it's not impossible if you don't have that that initial support there either so all great points you shared a lot of good insights about you know legacy building and trying to find your community and kind of support for one another and using network to navigate a difficult space can you share any like you know, reads that, that might be good for professional oh. transitioning or people that want to be senior leaders for chief of staff, like yourself or executive leaders, you know, they should recommend to put on the reading list. Yeah. So I often, um, cause this is my t- technically my second chief of staff role. It's my, my, my second one. That's it's my first one. That's, you know, to this extent and level 
And funny enough, LinkedIn has a chief of staff kind of course that they put together, which I think is interesting. It's not the end all be all, but it starts to give you perspectives on that, on, you know, what to think about. And then like, what, you know, what kind of chief of staff are you like, what, you know, pieces of the strategy. So, you know, kind of tied to that role. I think that that's there. I also just discovered there's a chief of staff association. Of course there is. And Harvard and Oxford have, that's the, the two that align the communities, you know, for it. And, and, you know, the role of chief of staff, like you said, it's broad reaching and wide ranging. So that I think is, is cool. Like if you're just talking about like the specific niche that I'm in and the space, but I think understanding there's no, not yet anyways, there's no like single guide on how to be a chief of staff. The biggest thing you have to understand is there's lots of different ones. So Researching and looking up like what different chiefs of staff do and then understanding the organization alignment is cool. The book that I would recommend is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And the premise of that, yeah, you're nodding because even if you haven't read it, the just the, the concept makes sense, right? Like the things that we do to get us to one level um, and we even do it with our soldiers, right? When they get promoted to, to become an NCO, it's like, cool, the things you did as an individual contributor, stellar soldier is not the same thing that's going to allow you to be a great NCO. The things you did as, you know, a platoon leader is not going to be the thing as a commander or a battalion commander, the thing that you do, you know, in, 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 um, your, if you come in just right out of your captain years, right into corporate is not what's going to get you to be an executive. It's by um, Marshall Goldsmith. But I think that that book is, it's huge because oftentimes we're just like, well, this worked. Why isn't it working again? Right. It's a different environment. It's a different, you know, different level. It's different perspective. And so understanding that, considering that, I think is is a is it's a it's just like a good, a good read and grounding. So that's that's my recommendation. I love it. I mean, you've given me two two donations today. So those are we will add <laughs> for sure to the reading list and make sure our listeners know, you know, what what they are and where they can find those. Um, other question that I had as well. And so chief of staff role, like it, it can be varied, but like, what does it typically lead to? So is it the stepping stone to like higher levels and like executive leadership? Is it a culmination role? Like, I guess, what do you, what does it typically entail? And like, where does it go from there? Yes, is the answer. Uh, and I'm not trying to be cheeky or funny, but like I mentioned, there's a, a white paper out there that talks about that. And, and, and so that's what you need to understand. In some instances, it can be a culminating role. Like, you know, and for some organizations, they, the chief of staff that they're looking for is someone who has had a lot of experiences. They're effectively a strategic advisor, right? And they're helping, you know, the leader that they are supporting, like under, understand that. So their input is, is valuable. So in some orgs, it can be culminating. In, I think in, in my org and a lot, many places, it is, it, it offers you tremendous exposure, you know, you're getting exposed to lots of leaders across the business, across different elements. And so it can, it can be a stepping stone role if that's what you wish. And then, and then you decide, you know, where you're going from there, because I think the exposure that you have doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to then be a C-suite leader. You can, it can also be a stepping stone role for, you know, where you're leaning heavily. If it is more of an operational leader or more of a, you know, a different business leader. So the answer is, is yes. Um, it, it can be either. And then typically who, who, they're, who they're looking for, for the role will alert you to what, you know, which role or what kind of role it is. So 
if someone's seeking chief of staff opportunities, they need to understand that in that conversation with the leader. And I, you know, in, in my process, had an extensive conversation about what does this look like? Um, you know, what does it entail? How will I be engaged? At what times am I stepping in for my leader in certain circumstances versus, you know, supporting him? So sometimes I'm, I am the one at certain um, meetings in his stead and carrying out um, his guidance and the initiative strategies and intent. So. No, very helpful. Um, that, you know, it, it can be many things for many people. It just depends on the company where you're trying to go. Um, yeah. Other question, in terms of like the lessons that you learned about transitioning your leadership and management style into the corporate setting and into consulting and communication, are there any lessons learned that you wish to kind of give to our veteran audience about how to go from like a PL or a company commander to, oh, now I'm meeting a people like people manager of two or three, you know, analysts or junior consultants or whatever they may be. Yeah, I was going to, my initial reaction was going to be read the room, but... <laughs> But I think um, just zooming out, it really, it's under, it goes back to the comment before about understanding the culture, right? So companies have different cultures and some in, in microcosms of cultures within the, the firms themselves. So in some spaces, a direct management style, leadership style that we learn in the military still, still works. Like you can be very direct and very forward. I learned the hard way when I was in the guard, I would come back from my annual training weekends or like my drill weekends and be very directive. And then people would just kind of be like, what's happening? And then I would have to go, right, let me, you know, backtrack on my language. And so it went from this must happen in this way to, hey, how might we approach this? Right. And it's, you're still communicating it, but there's different language that you use that's consultative versus directive, et cetera. So, you know, I'm being a little funny with read the room, but I think that is part of it is like understanding the culture. And then I think as with anything else, it's understanding the people that you work with. So oftentimes it just, you know, I, I do this very much. So on meetings, like if we pop on a meeting and somebody needs something from me, it's work-related. It's the first time I'm engaged with them. I'm go, Hey, I know we only have 30 minutes for this, but can you just tell me about yourself? Just like low background, like how long have you been here? What are you doing? Where do you come from? That little moment to take that gives you so much context because you may think you have a brand new analyst and then you find out that but they they actually have a master's, you know, in IT and molecular biology undergrad. And while it may not be specific to what you're doing, you know that they under they have the propensity and the capacity to understand complex things, right? So I think it's... It, it, Different than the army where, generally speaking, someone's wearing a uniform, you know, how long they've been in, their rank, what they've done, like, you know, their education. In the civilian world, you can't see that from, you know, someone's attire or just from their level. So it's good to just take some time to understand who they are, what they bring to the table, and then you can you can navigate from there and and, and leverage that and, and use that to your your best benefit to, to know who you're dealing with and how you can um, engage with them. The read the room, use emotional intelligence, and pick up the cultural norms of the new organization. I love how you sum it up. You're like, Kathy, that was great. So here are the here are the three key points for everyone. <laughs> no, I'm but a, yeah, exactly. I'm a little practice consultant. I try my best. <laughs> That's great. And so, in looking back on your career, any other like lesson learned that you want to share, whether it's with your war sisters or future West Pointers, about just in general, like, hey, if I had a couple lessons about how to be a better army officer or a better, like, transitioning veteran, 
or even like a consultant or trying different career and opportunities, balancing a little bit of everything at once. Any any advice there? Yeah, I think, I don't know that it's necessarily a piece of advice, but it is a lesson learned and it's uh, just something that I carry with me. The experiences that you have had, they're not necessarily positive or negative. Look at them as experiences because with time, with distance, there's so much that you will have learned or carried from it. So whether you were, you know, star wreath, like Dean's list, or, you know, barely squeak by to get out of there, that's an experience and that forged something. So like, what is it that you got from that? Right. Like, what did you learn about yourself from that? What did you want to improve about yourself from that? Right. Um, especially for those of us who were amazing students in high school, we got to West Point, you're like, what happened to my grades? I thought I was, you know, a great student and you carry that to grad school and you're like, I'm now going to be a better student again. Right. Like, and so I say all that to say whatever experiences that you have, sure. If you want to classify it as positive or negative in the moment, when you step away from it, just classify it as an experience and take the lesson from that and take the time to like, to accumulate those lessons, to put them together, to help, you know, to help steer you. Um, and I, I tend to look at my life like that. A lot of times they'll ask people, what's the high points? What's the low point? And I go, none, they're, they're just experiences and they, they forge me. So I would say not to get hung up on, you know, any really good thing that happened to you, right. Or any really bad thing that happened to you. They're just an experience. Um, today you can be, you know, top of the game tomorrow. You could just be a regular person. But if you just look at it as an experience, when I was at the top of the game, here's how I experienced this. Here's how, how I went with it. When I was in this low point, here's how I experienced it. Here's what I learned from it. And you take those lessons. It helps you to, to formulate like who you are and who you're continuing to be. So don't get hung up on it. Um, either way, just take those experiences and and just continue to grow and, and build on them. So framing those experiences and taking away some of the vibes and negative feelings about them. Yeah. Um, last piece, we know you're involved in many things. And so are there any places where people want to connect and learn more about your story or things that you're working on, whether it's you know, initiatives for your company or side hustles or books? Anything that they should know about navigating what she does, you know, at her downtime. I don't. I smile because there's something brewing, but it's not not yet. <laughs> not yet. But if people want to connect with me, LinkedIn is fine. It's I, Kathy Joseph. When you search me, you'll just find all the things. So if people want to connect with me, I am good for a, a LinkedIn connect. I'm not on it all the time, but that's where you'll see most of what's going on, especially in this new role. I'm, I'm doing a lot of posting, a lot of sharing of initiatives and how we're engaging. So yeah, that's where I am. So well, happy. You definitely appreciate it. Round two for, for the podcast. I still remember when you were the, the far west outreach officer when I was a queen. I remember that too. That's right. Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh, man. Full circle. Full circle. Full circle moment for sure. Well, thanks for having me, Meshaw. I really appreciate that you're doing this. Like I said, this is, we're not a monolith. So the fact that you're collecting these different stories, these different experiences is huge. Um, Not everybody's going to be like me or have my energy, but potentially some of what I have will resonate. Some of what other people you've had on will resonate. And it's, it's really, you know, useful for folks who are transitioning. So thank you for having this vision, this, you know, the story and bringing, bringing me and, and other folks like me on to share. I appreciate it. Definitely. It's my joy.